listening to the Touch Em Up podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we have UFC 282, Blahovich versus Ankalaev preview, predictions, and analysis. UFC 282 takes place this Saturday night from the famous T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada, with a main event battle for the vacant light heavyweight title after Prohaska had to remove himself from the event and vacate the title due to injury. It's going to be a battle between the number three ranked former light heavyweight champion and the man who possesses Polish power in Jan Blachowicz going up against the number four ranked Magomed Ankalaev, who holds an unbelievable professional record of 18 victories with only one lone defeat. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, everybody. All right, all right, all right. I hope you guys are ready for UFC 282 predictions, man. This is a good card. Obviously, as all of you guys probably know already, we have some fights that have fallen out from the card. We're no longer going to be getting Robbie Lawler versus Santiago Ponzinibbio. Lawler had to pull out due to an injury. In steps, Fortis MMA's Alex the Great White Morano. So now we're going to have Alex Morono versus Santiago Ponzinibbio. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to be predicting that fight on this podcast. Um, Not because I think that there's no point to do it. It's just I had already spent so much time going down the card already. I don't really think that that's a fight we have to spend a whole lot of time on. But before we get to the predictions for the card, I will give you a slight lean on that fight. I think the short notice plays into the favor of Morono. I don't think that he's good enough to hang with Ponzinibbio on the feet, but I think he's a little bit awkward enough to maybe hurt Ponzinibbio in some exchanges just because of how textbook and tactical slash technical Ponzinibbio is in his approach. A lot of jabs, a lot of using the range and the distance, a lot of measured attacks and measured approaches. From Ponzinibbio, if Morono can come in and kind of rough him up, come at him on awkward angles and throw some wild shots at him, there is a chance of an upset here. I'm not going to lean on the upset, though, just based on the short notice. You know, I think that plays more into the factor of Ponzinibbio, but he's also, or I'm sorry, plays more into the hand of Morono, but Ponzinibbio has also already been getting ready for a fight, so... I'm going to have to go with Ponzinibbio there. I think it'll be a very close first round, but I think in the second round, Ponzinibbio is going to catch Alex Morono, drop him, and knock him out. So my pick for that fight is going to be Santiago Ponzinibbio catching Alex Morono with a straight right hand and knocking him out. So Ponzinibbio via second round. KOTKO, I mean, he's probably going to be a big favorite. I'm not sure if the odds are out for that fight yet, but I'm pretty sure it is official that Morono is going to be the one to step in and fight him this Saturday. But besides that, I mean... You know, last weekend's UFC fight night, we had a good week. We had a good week. Um, overall, I think we went 9-4 and four on our predictions, so 9 out of 13 overall. A lot of uh, correct picks and correct picks with the winning method as well. We had RDA by submission. We had Delidze by KOTKO that I know a lot of people weren't really riding with me on that one, but he had the, he had him in that beautiful Calf slicer position, used it to gain the the back mount almost with the calf slicer still locked in and landed some vicious ground and pound. I mean, look, we all know that Delidze is not the most technical guy. He's not the cleanest striker in the world, but he can, you know, get you stuck in some awkward positions. And I know a lot of people were riding heavy on Hermanson's grappling ability, his jujitsu, his submission attempts. I mean, just go back and watch the fight. I mean, Early in the fight, Delidze was able to hit a scissor sweep from that armbar position to wind up on top of Jack Hermanson. 
And that was a big, that should have been a big eye opener for a lot of fans watching that fight. Like, you know, Delidze can hang with him on the floor. He then went for the arm bar again, used it to transition into the Ashigurami game and go for the leg lock. Then, or I believe he started in an arm bar. Yeah, so he started in an arm bar. He went into like that same scissor sweep position. Then he rolled over onto an angle and got into an inverted triangle, which almost got Hermanson out of there. Then when Hermanson got out of that, he was able to roll into the Ashigarami game and play with the leg locks and get the calf slicer position on Jack Hermanson, then roll over after getting the seatbelt, or not a seatbelt grip, but reaching to the opposite side of the back of Hermanson and using that to pull him over. And then he used that to roll into the calf slicer, get like a top back mount position, and ground and pound him for the win in the second round. But big win for Roman Delidze. He's now ranked eighth in the middleweight division. We had that one right. Um, RDA over Barbarina. I know a lot of people wanted to play Brian Barbarina just based on the fact that he was a big underdog. And he was, you know, we didn't know how good RDA was going to look. And he looked good early on, but it was just the grappling, the takedowns, the wrestling like we talked about. Almost had him in the arm triangle too. I believe I called a, a second round arm triangle choke submission for RDA. He wasn't able to get the arm triangle, but it was just constant pressure, constant takedowns, constant top control. Was able to take the back of Brian Barbarina and lock up a rear naked choke. So again, we had RDA by submission. We had Yasmin Yaraguay to win via KOTKO. She got that done in the second round, I believe. I wasn't home for the early prelims, so I wasn't really able to catch those. Um, what else did we have? In the main event, we had... Kevin Holland, but I didn't bet on a winner. I bet on fight does not go the distance. I think you got it at like minus 200, which, you know, that is a, a pretty hefty line for that fight, but going against a guy in Kevin Holland who can get a finish at just about any point, and he almost finished Wonderboy in the first round, and then against a guy in Wonderboy who, you know, has that technical ability, has that traditional karate in and out style, and was going to be able to catch Holland on counters. We kind of relied on Wonderboy being towards the tail end of his career and really not being able to go at the speed that he was able to go at before, and he shut every one of us up. I'm glad I didn't bet on Holland because my pick originally for the fight was, I believe, Kevin Holland via third-round TKO, but I'm glad I didn't bet on that because I had a feeling that if Wonderboy was going to look good in any fight, you know, that was going to come up for him. It was going to be this one against Holland and man, he looked amazing. It was back and forth early on, but then it was just wonder boy hitting him with spinning wheel kicks, front kicks to the body, round kicks to the body, stance, switching crosses, hooks, you know, spinning hook kicks, wheel kicks. I mean, he hit Kevin Holland with everything, but the kitchen sink and eventually his corner stopped it in between the fourth and the fifth round. And we got a fourth round TKO victory for Steven wonder boy Thompson. Um, I like, a matchup with Leon Edwards next for Wonderboy. I know it's for a title, but Wonderboy's kind of at the tail end of his career. He lost to Bilal Muhammad, you know, and then prior to that, he lost to Gilbert Burns, and that was more related to the grappling than the striking. He looked great on the feet against Kevin Holland, who's a dangerous guy in that division, but that was a kind of a, I mean, I'm not going to say a bad matchup because I did pick Holland, but that was a favorable matchup for the style of both guys, and Wonderboy looked fantastic, so it was one of the best fights I've ever seen. If you haven't gone and watched that fight, definitely go out of your way to check out Kevin Holland versus Steven Thompson from last weekend um, at UFC Orlando. What else did we have? Let's see. I'll pull up the whole card. I can tell you. Let's see. Oh, I had Sergey Pavlovich to win via first round KO TKO over Taitu Avasa. I just think that was a bad 
fight for Ty to take at this point. And you saw that the power of Sergei Pavlovich was just too much for Ty. I mean, the first big exchange that they that he threw, he dropped Ty. He got back up. He dropped him again. So we had Pavlovich by KOTKO. We had RDA by submission. We had Tallinn by KOTKO, but that didn't work. But I ended up betting that at, um, the fight does not go the distance. I had Mateus Nicolau to win via submission, but he ended up getting the finish in round two via KOTKO. Um, I said on the podcast, I believe, that I liked the fight doesn't go the distance or the under two and a half rounds. Uh, both of those would have hit because Nicolau got the knockout at 144 the second round. I mean, the minute he was able to dick find the range, he was able to land that left hook on the chinish. Now, he dropped him the first time. He got back up, dropped him again, and then eventually jumped on him for the finish. Nicolau's a dangerous guy in this flyweight division. He's very technical, very tactical. He's just a little bit boring to most people because he likes to find his shots, pick up on the rhythm, pick up on the fakes and feints, and find his openings to land those shots. You know, so of course in the beginning it wasn't going to look the most entertaining. It was going to be slow. It was going to be boring until Nicolau found the chance to explode, and that came at the cost of Matt Schnell's chin via that left hook, and he did it. And, you know, once he started hurting him, he just kept on hurting him. You know, I understand why people like to ride with Matt Schnell because he is kill or be killed, and – I said he was going to get killed in this fight, and he did. But um, I'm sure Matt Schnell will be back. I don't know who his next fight will be against, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, we talked about the Pavlovich fight. Uh, Eric Anders got the second round KO, TKO over Kyle Dawkins. I mean, Dawkins looked good in the fight early on, in my opinion. I mean, it wasn't anything to write home about, but I feel like he was picking up on the fakes and feints um, of Eric Anders. He was kind of trying to draw him out. That headbutt really cost. Dawkus in this fight, I believe. There was that early headbutt that really hurt Dawkus as they clashed heads. And then after that, it was just the power of Anders was too much. Part of me thinks he came back too quick after that knee knockout against Roman Delidze. Um, but I, I was riding with Dawkus. I thought the technical striking was going to be a big problem for Eric Anders. And I thought the grappling was going to be a big problem for Anders. You know, Anders showed that he was able to stop the takedowns. He was able to avoid getting taken down and work his striking on the feet. Every time he landed big on Kyle Dawkins, it hurt him. I'm not going to write off Kyle Dawkins completely, but I'm not sure if I'll back him in his next fight. Um, you know, he got hurt real bad in that Delidze fight with that knee. And, you know, maybe it was the fact that he didn't take enough time off after that knockout and then came back and fought Anders. Um, I could see that being a possibility here. Um, I just think that the chin of Kyle Dawkins is kind of gone at this point, and it could be the same case with Chris Dawkins, who fights this weekend against Rosenstrike. We're not going to break that fight down. Um, I don't have a prediction for that one, so if you're looking for that prediction by itself, you're probably not going to find it here because we're not going to break that one down. Um, but yeah, Anders, I didn't I didn't pick him. I had Phil Rowe by KOTKO. I actually backed a bet on Phil Rowe. A lot of the bets I had on Rowe were on the money line, and that hit for us. But I had Roe via finish in round two, and he got the finish, but it was in round three. I thought round two was going to be a good look for him, especially since a lot of his other knockouts had come in the second round. But he, uh, Nico Price was able to survive. He was able to last. He actually won the second round, in my opinion. The first round was close, but I feel like Roe was dictating the range. He was using that length and that reach, the knees up the middle, um, finding the range, um, angling off to his rear side to find the angle to land that right-hand left hook. Behind it, the jab of Phil Rowe was working really well. And once he was able to get up off the ground and get off the pressure of Nico Price and get to the striking range where he wanted it to be, it was the Rowe show all day. And the Fresh Prince came up big. He was just catching Nico Price up against the cage. That right hand couldn't miss. The left hand, the one-two right down the middle. The left hook behind it, the knee right up the center. 
The ref jumps in, stops it at three minutes, 26 seconds around three. Big win for Phil Rowe. Um, I'm trying to get him on the podcast. I'm not sure if it's going to work out, but we're going to see. Um, yeah, but big win for Phil Rowe there. Big win as an underdog as well. I had a bunch of underdogs this week, and a lot of them paid off for, I hope, anybody listening to this podcast and myself included. I had Rowe and Delidze in a couple parlays um, as the underdogs. Delidze was a bigger dog than um, Rowe, but still, I knew that Nico Price definitely should have been the underdog in that fight. Go over to the prelims. I had Angela Hill. I didn't have it on the podcast, but I picked Angela Hill to win. I had Holtzman over Guida. Guida just outgrinded him. That's why I didn't want to touch that fight anywhere. I had Johnson by decision over Jacasey. I was kind of surprised that Michael Johnson, like I, I didn't bet Michael Johnson on the money line, but I had a bet on Johnson via KOTKO on uh, FanDuel. And that one obviously didn't pan out for us, but I did pick Michael Johnson in this fight. He was a huge underdog, I think like plus 300, and uh, he got the job done there. I had Jonathan Pierce over Elkins. Again, you don't have to believe me because I didn't do all these picks on the podcast, but I had Natan Levy over Gennaro, Gennaro Valdez. He got the win via decision pretty uh, hard early on. Like it was kind of kind of murky waters for both guys. It looked really close, but he was able to come up big after getting hurt by Valdez, and then he hurt Valdez early in the first round. It was back and forth, but the grappling and wrestling really paid off for uh, Natan Levy. Marcelo Rojo gets knocked out by Francis Marshall. I know I was probably one of the only people or one of the few people back in Rojo here, but uh, Marshall came up big and knocked him out in the second round. I mean, you know, it, he lost his first two fights in the UFC, did Rojo, but I thought he was going to be able to beat a guy in Francis Marshall, but Marshall obviously proved us wrong and, um, you know, got a big knockout victory there. So big win for him and kind of interesting to see where Rojo goes from here. He might get cut, but we'll have to wait and find out. All right, and without any further ado, I mean, let's just jump into the picks for UFC 282. We're going to start it off in the early prelims, actually, with a battle in the UFC's featherweight division between Billy, Billy Q Quarantillo. I don't actually think he has a nickname, but Billy Quarantillo, who comes into the fight with a record of 16 victories and four defeats, going up against a former lightweight dropping down for the first time to 145 pounds. I really don't know how he's going to make 145 but the powerhouse in Alexander the Great Hernandez, who comes in with a record of 13 victories and five defeats. This is a great fight. You know, featherweight division, Quarantillo versus Hernandez. I'm going to be surprised if Hernandez makes the weight without issue. I mean, he's not that tall of a guy, but he's short and he's stocky. And when it's muscle, you got to cut off and it's not really a ton of fat. Those weight cuts always kind of drain the opponent a little bit more than if you're just cutting off, you know, fat. And stuff like that. So I feel like it's going to be a little bit hard, a little bit harder of a cut for Hernandez to get down to 45. Who knows? He might not even make weight. But Quarantillo and Hernandez is a good fight, man. It's going to be a firefight. It's going to be action from the beginning until the end. And I mean, you look at both guys, and we'll pull it up real quick right here. You look at Billy Quarantillo. His last fight came at UFC 268 against. Excuse me. At UFC 268 against Shane Burgos, that was actually Burgos's second to last fight inside the UFC. I believe right after that is when he went and fought. Um, what's it called? 
uh, Charles Jourdain, and then he went over to the PFL after that. But Quarantillo lost via unanimous decision to Shane Burgos in that fight. But early on, man, and you know later in that fight in the third round before he was getting clipped, he was landing some good shots. He's got a very good fade-off left hook. He likes to lean over to his right side, which is his rear side, and throw the left hook as he's moving his head, kind of to catch the opponent coming in or potentially catch them over the cross as they jump in. Got a very good left hook, follows up with the right hand behind it. Um, likes to get that single-collar clinch and land those uppercuts and punches you know, in dirty boxing range. And I think dirty boxing against Alexander Hernandez is actually going to be a big weapon for Billy Quarantillo in this fight. Hernandez is going to be the cleaner, sharper and prettier striker. I mean, you look at a lot of his fights, even the ones that he's lost, he's come into a lot of fights and, you know, his striking always looks clean. It always looks technical. It's just his defense isn't the best at some points. And, you know, you look at Quarantillo's record, he lost to Burgos. Prior to that, he had that third round TKO over Gabriel Benitez. Just the pressure, the forward pressure, the grappling, the ground and pound. I mean, Quarantillo never stops. From the minute the bell rings in the beginning of the first round to the minute the bell rings either at the end of the 15-minute time limit or via finish, Quarantillo's not going to stop coming at you. He's not going to stop moving forward. He's going to be pressuring you. He's going to be pushing you back. He's going to be getting in your face, landing the left hook, landing the right hand, landing the uppercuts to the body, the left hook, the right uppercut. He's really good with the jab, left hook, right uppercut. One, two, switch southpaw, right hook to an overhand left. One, two, overhand left as he switches to southpaw. Go back, double jab, left hook, right uppercut. Slip off to his rear side, left hook, right hand. I mean, he mixes up his combinations well. It's not technical, it's not pretty, but he mixes up his kicks, his punches, his grappling attempts, the takedowns. I mean, the guy's just not going to stop. And against a guy in Alexander Hernandez, who, like I said, is going to be the more technical guy. He fights out of Factory X Muay Thai with coach Mark Montoya. He's going to be the cleaner striker. He's going to probably have more power. He's going to be faster. Like on paper, the advantages here should go to Alexander the Great Hernandez. But, you know, you look at his last few fights, and we're going to pull it up right now. I mean, he's 13-5 and five in pro mixed martial arts. He's got six wins by KOTKO, two by submission, and five by decision. Out of his five losses, he's been finished three times, two by KO, one by submission, and the other two losses come via decision. Um, he lost his last fight to Hinato Moicano via rear naked choke in the second round at UFC 271. Looked good in the first round. He has a very solid left body kick from southpaw. As he's in that southpaw stance, he's able to bash an orthodox fighter with that rear body kick. Now, we already talk about southpaw versus orthodox. Southpaw, right foot in front, left foot in back, power coming from the rear left side. Orthodox, which is conventional, is a lead left foot in front, right foot in back, power is going to be coming from that rear right side. So when you want to fight it, when you're fighting in uh, opposite stances, you're trying to edge your lead foot to the outside of the opponent's lead foot so it can give you the angle to land your power shot but also have you be out of range when the opponent comes back to try to land their power shot. It's always a foot battle between southpaw versus orthodox. And, um, you know, you saw Hernandez trying to land that left body kick. It landed a lot. The front kicks up the middle. He's got big power. He's got speed. He is technical. His defense just isn't the best. And usually when he starts to lose a fight, if it starts to go you know, in the other direction, he seems to kind of wilt and, and move back out of, you know, the places he needs to be in order to win. And I think the pressure of Billy Quarantillo, the forward pressure, the constant movement, you know, the forward pressure, the uppercuts, the left hooks, the dirty boxing inside the clinch. I really think Billy Q's biggest success in this fight is going to be inside the clinch. I don't expect a whole lot of grappling in terms of takedowns and top control for Quarantillo unless it comes in that third round. 
just because I think it's going to be really hard for him to time the takedowns on Hernandez, who is very fast, who does move a lot. Now, forward pressure against a guy who moves really good laterally and moves in and out like Hernandez and switches his stances, that could be a problem because it's going to be harder for Quarantillo to find that distance. It's going to be harder for him to find the range, and it's going to be harder for him to close off that range and then start to land his pressure oriented striking attacks to close, you know, to get in the face of Hernandez. But the longer the fight goes, Hernandez is going to slow down. He's big. He's muscular. He's got a big frame for this division. He's also cutting another 10 pounds to drop to 45. I think that's going to be a tough weight cut for him. Do I think it's going to be awful? No, but I think he's going to feel that weight cut in the second round in the second half of the second round, going into the third against a guy who's going to never stop moving forward in Quarantillo. Now Quarantillo did take a lot of damage in the fight against Shane Burgos. I mean, he got wobbled, he got rocked, he got dropped, you know, but he kept coming forward and he kept getting in his face. The the low kicks were giving him a lot of trouble. I think that's a weapon that Hernandez needs to use. He needs to attack the lead outside low kick or the rear outside low kick against the orthodox fighter in Quarantillo. And when he goes southpaw, he needs to attack the inside low kicks. He needs to use the lead outside low kick to kind of angle off and get that outside angle so he can find the range to land that right hand, to land the left hook behind it, to land the one-twos. I mean, if Hernandez smells that you're hurt, he'll pour it on. He'll throw 10, 15, 20-punch combinations, switch stances, throw the straight shots, the uppercuts, the hooks, etc. you know, and get you out of there, but you also have to look at the caliber of opponents that he's doing this to. I mean, a Mike Breeden and a Chris Gritzmacher, those aren't really top-level competition inside the UFC. Gritzmacher's a veteran, Breeden's a decent guy, but, you know, it's nowhere near the competition that uh, Corintio has faced and that Corintio has had success with because, yes, Hernandez has fought better competition. I mean, he knocked out Benil Dariush. Dariush is like one fight away from a title. He actually knocked him out. Um, one fight away from a title shot, but he actually knocked him out in his UFC debut, did Alexander Hernandez. But a lot of the times, you know, Quarantillo has better showings in these fights. Even if he loses, you know, it's a dogfight. It's a war. He's he's pushing forward. He's always in your face. And like I said, I think Hernandez is going to be the more technical guy. He's going to have the speed advantage. He's going to have the power advantage. He's going to have the technical striking advantage, but the pressure is going to be too much for him. And paired with that weight cut, you know, I think that this is a tailor-made matchup for Quarantillo. I think we're going to see him show out here. I think it's going to be a close first round. I think Hernandez might even win the first round, might edge it out. He might be able to catch Quarantillo with some big shots because he doesn't move his head that effectively. But those slip rear uppercuts, the left hooks, the slip to the rear side, landing the left hook behind it to the right hand, to the inside and outside low kicks and just walking him down. I think that Quarantillo eventually is just going to get in that range, get in his groove and start to walk down Hernandez. And Hernandez is going to have the wind sucked out of him. He's going to start gassing in the, at the midpoint of that second round. And I think Hernandez is almost going to get finished in the second. But I think we're going to go to the third and Quarantillo is just going to pour it on him. You know, land some big shots, land some volume up against the cage and just, just overwhelm Hernandez and get a third round TKO. I think he's going to just, that pace and pressure is going to be too much. And I really like Billy Q in this fight. So my pick is going to be Billy Quarantillo to defeat Alexander the Great Hernandez via a third-round TKO. Now, you go and you look at the odds for this fight. Um, Quarantillo is actually a slight favorite. He's sitting at minus 165 to a plus 140 dog for Hernandez. I like Quarantillo in this spot a lot, but if you like the power and the speed of Hernandez and you think that he's going to be just too fast for Quarantillo, I could see you taking that side and playing the underdog, but I think Billy Quarantillo is a big spot in this fight. 
Um, I'm not going to recommend to play him on everything, but if you're going to play this fight at all, I would say play Billy Q on the money line or play the over one and a half rounds. I don't, if it's lined at over 1.5, <coughs> oh, excuse me. If it's lined at over one and a half rounds, I think that's the best bet overall for the fight. If it's lined at over two and a half, I don't think I would touch it because there is a possibility of a finish on either side, but I could also see it go in the distance. I think the best play for this fight is a money line bet on Billy Q. I already locked it in in, a, in a, one of the parlays I'm playing um, at minus 165. I think it's going to stay around that range. It might go to minus 175 at the highest by the end of the week. But I really like Billy Q in this fight. I think the pressure, the overwhelming striking on the feet, the clinch game, the dirty boxing. He's going to make this a dirty fight. He's going to be in the face of Hernandez. Hernandez doesn't like that, and he kind of wilts under the pressure. So I really like Billy Q to get the job done in this fight. I'm going to go with the third round KOTKO. He's going to overwhelm him. He's going to be too much for him. I could see a decision, but Billy Quarantillo to defeat Alexander the Great Hernandez via third round TKO. All right, the next fight up is also on the prelims in the UFC's middleweight division in a phenomenal matchup between the number 15 ranked middleweight in Chris, the action man, Curtis, who comes into this fight with a record of, excuse me, 29 victories and nine defeats, going up against Joaquin Numansa Buckley, who comes back with a record of 15 victories and five defeats. Buckley versus Curtis is a great matchup. It's great matchmaking by the UFC. They're both going to be coming forward looking for action. I mean, Chris, the action man, Curtis, is coming off his first loss in the UFC to Jack Hermanson. You know, and in that fight, Curtis just really couldn't get it going. The outside game of Hermanson, the footwork, the angles, the low kicks, the front kicks to the body, and then eventually hurting Curtis up, you know, on the feet pushing him up against the cage, landing some elbows in the clinch, knees to the body, and just really outworking Chris Curtis, not allowing him to close off that range and land his beautiful counters, the overhand left, the left sit back, uh, the quick sit rear uppercut to the body, the right hook over the top, the straight left behind it, the straight left to roll underneath. He really wasn't able to land any of that on Hermanson due to his footwork, due to the kicking game. He really just was playing the outside game too much and could never close off that distance. You could see he was visibly frustrated, uh, really frustrated, actually, during and after that fight. But that was his first loss in the UFC. Prior to that, Curtis had knockout victories over Brendan Allen and then Phil Hawes in his debut. The knockout over Phil Hawes and the win over Brendan Allen looks really good. And then he beat Hadolfo Vieira via decision prior to that loss to Hermanson. So he was on a three-fight win streak in the UFC uh, all against Phil Hawes, Brendan Allen, and Hadolfo Vieira. And then he lost to Jack Hermanson. And then Joaquin Buckley was able to get a win in his last fight, I believe. Or actually, no. So he lost his last fight to Nazardine Imavov. I thought Imavov was going to knock him out in that fight, but Buckley was able to survive. He looked really good in the third round, was able to pour the pressure on Nazardine Imavov. You know, really had a good account of himself in that fight, but he lost the fight via decision. Prior to that, he was on a three-fight win streak in the UFC with a TKO doctor stoppage over Albert Duraev, a split decision win over Abdul Razak El-Hassan, and then a knockout in the third round via Anto over Antonio Ahoyo. Prior to that, he got knocked out in the first round via head kick to Alessio Di Chirico. Um, that loss doesn't look the greatest, but it is what it is. So currently, he's sitting with a record of, let's see, he's got a record of... 
one, two, three, two, one, two, five, two, five and three inside the UFC coming off a loss in his last fight, but he's three and one in his last four. Chris Curtis also currently three and one in his last four fights inside the promotion. You know, this is going to be a good fight. Both guys fight out of Southpaw. Both guys have, you know, that forward pressure type of style. The only thing is the movement, the footwork, and the rushing in is going to come from the side of New Monza, Joaquin Buckley. Joaquin Buckley is going to be looking to explode in on Chris Curtis at any chance he gets. He's a very Mike Tyson-esque fighter. Chris Curtis has a boxing-heavy style of approach with his game as well. But Joaquin Buckley's more of that bob and weave, you know, slip, slip, roll, come back with the counters, roll underneath, 6-3-2, roll under, slip, counter, 6-3-2, roll under to the right hook, roll to the left hook, roll underneath. He's always moving his head. He's always trying to close off the range. He does have some, you know, tidbits of a traditional martial arts style in his game. He likes to use the front leg sidekicks. I mean, the knockout he landed against Impa Kasanganai, where he was able to catch that rear left body kick. He swept it across, but as he swept it, Buckley jumped and spun and landing a, landed a spinning back kick right to the jaw of Kasanganai, knocked him out, got one of the biggest KOs in UFC history. But Buckley's going to be the more explosive guy in terms of his movements, but I think the better, cleaner striker and the guy who's going to have more effects with his power is going to be Chris Curtis, and I'll explain why. Curtis is going to be better on the counters. You know, Buckley's going to be the guy who's, you know, getting more real estate around the octagon. He's going to be moving in and out. He's going to be moving laterally. He's going to be changing his angles. He's going to be trying to dart in, roll underneath, slip, slip, roll, come back with a counter. That's just the guy that Joaquin Buckley is. That's his fighting style. He fights on the outside, but he bum rushes in with his big shots. He's got power. He can do it very well. He's got good footwork and good movement. The only thing is Chris Curtis might have a little bit of trouble cutting off Buckley. And I think if anybody's picking Buckley, that's probably going to be the reason why. Because they feel like it's going to be hard for Curtis to cut off Buckley when you watch his last fight against Jack Hermanson. He had a hard time with the kicking game, the constant movement, the angles, the shifting, you know, getting that outside foot. He had trouble finding his range to land his boxing combinations. He had trouble pressuring Jack Hermanson, and I think we are going to see a little bit similar of a fight here with Joaquin Buckley. I think it's going to be a little bit harder for Curtis to close off the range on Buckley because of his movement. He's going to be constantly angling off, moving to his left. Or um, They're both going to be southpaws in this fight, so they're both not going to have that outside foot advantage, and it's going to be a little bit harder for each guy to land their attacks because they're so used to fighting guys in the opposite stance. They're so used to having to get that outside foot against the opponent. But both these guys are going to have the same shots. The right jab, the left cross, the left body kick, the left overhands, the lead uppercuts, the lead right hook. It's all going to be the same. And although I think at kicking range and at kicking distance, it's Buckley's fight to lose. Like Buckley's going to win that fight. Eight, nine out of 10 times, 10 out of 10 times when the fight is at kicking range or just outside of kicking range. But if somebody can cut off the kicking range, close the distance and find their way into range and be able to land those counters, it's going to be the action man, Chris Curtis. He's very patient in his approach. He might be losing the fight early on, but he'll find the openings. He'll find the counters. He uses that shoulder roll and high guard on the opposite side, very boxing-esque approach to his defense. Some high guard, some shoulder roll, some slipping and rolling, and that's how he's able to catch the opponents coming in with the overhand lefts. The thing that Buckley has to worry about that Curtis doesn't is Curtis's shots are going to be short, and they're going to be 
There's not going to be a lot of windup on them, which can have Buckley running into the counters of Chris Curtis. Even the one he caught Phil Hawes with, he just caught him stepping in and boom, caught him with a short overhand left. But it was literally, there was no space. It was almost like not even an arm punch. It was like a shoulder punch. He just bop, turned it over, caught Phil Hawes on the chin, hurt him, and then jumped on him and finished him. The one against Brendan Allen, they both went for similar shots. Allen went to the body. Curtis went up top to the head. Boom, short hook, caught him, rocked him, and hurt him. Curtis is really good with his boxing technique. It's not too much windup. There's not a lot of overextension. It's just him finding the range and being able to cut off Buckley that's going to be the problem. Is he going to be able to cut off Joaquin Buckley? Is he going to be able to close that range? Get past the front kicks, the spinning back kicks. Get past the darting in straight left hands, right hooks, right uppercuts. Get past the stance switches. Get past that funky outward or uh outside fighting style of footwork. If he can close off the range and close off the distance, he's going to catch Buckley and he's going to hurt him and probably finish him off. I think that Chris Curtis has not the bigger power. Like we talked about earlier, he's not the bigger power puncher pound for pound, but he's better at setting up his shots. His shots are shorter, which adds power to the shots. And he's just a cleaner striker overall. You know, precision beats power, timing beats speed. I think it's going to be kind of the similar situation with here. Shout out to Conor McGregor. It's going to be a similar situation in this fight. The uh, precision of Chris Curtis with his counters is going to beat the power of Joaquin Buckley. And the timing of Chris Curtis being able to catch Buckley as he comes in with those darting combinations, as he throws those big shots, is going to be the difference. And I think he's going to catch Joaquin Buckley coming in on a counter drop him, and actually finish him off. I could see the fight going the distance, but based off of how explosive both guys are, I expect it to probably more than likely get a finish from either side. I think if it's a one-shot knockout, you know, it could be Buckley landing a high kick on Chris Curtis because with that boxing shoulder roll and high guard on the opposite side, you can be open and susceptible to kicks up top to the head. If you shoulder roll and you're rolling the wrong way and you get caught with a high kick, I mean, the defenses just aren't really there. And even if you have that high guard on that side, you're going to be able to, you know, feel the power of that kick coming through your guard. So, I like the kicking game and the outside game of Buckley, but I like the countering game and the pressure game of Chris Curtis a little bit more when it comes to breaking down the fight. They're not going to have the outside foot advantage as they normally would going up against the orthodox fighter, but I'm going to say that Curtis works the body of Buckley uh, in that second round. I think Buckley probably wins the first round, but Curtis starts to pick up on the timing and the distance towards the tail end of that first, first round. And then going into the second, that left uppercut to the body, that Bolo-style uppercut, the right hook over the top, the 1-1-2, one, one, they're all going to start landing. And eventually, Buckley's going to come in and explode on a shot. He's going to get caught with that straight left of Chris Curtis, wobbled, dropped, and knocked out. So my pick is going to be Chris, the action man Curtis, the number 15-ranked fighter in the middleweight division, to defeat Joaquin Numansa Buckley via a third-round TKO. He's currently lined at plus 115. Earlier on in the week, he was plus 120, plus 125 as an underdog. I believe I just got him last night at a plus 125 underdog up against Buckley. Like, this isn't the best fight to bet on overall going up and down the card. I could definitely see areas where Buckley wins this fight, and I already talked about that. If he keeps it at range, keeps it at a distance, and fights at the range he wants to, then he's going to win the fight. If, if Curtis can close the range and then time Buckley, you know, darting in and rushing in and exploding and catching him with his clean boxing counters, then Curtis is going to win the fight. It's going to be more of a push 
and pull style of approach from Curtis, but he's going to be more focused on the pull. Buckley is going to be push, 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 and not so much pull. You know, and I think the push and pull style of Chris Curtis is going to find him that opening and allow him to win this fight via knockout in the third round. Um, like I said, I like on uh, Chris Curtis as an underdog play here. I like the fight doesn't go to the, the distance, but I don't like it that much. If they line it at over one and a half, I think that's your best play for the fight. If it's over two and a half, I mean, it's kind of risky. But best play, in my opinion, is going to be Chris Curtis on the money line. Second best play would be over one and a half rounds if they line it in that direction. I wouldn't be mad at you for playing Buckley, but I got to go the action man, Chris Curtis, via third round TKO over Joaquin Buckley. And he'll just inch his way ever so closely up that top 15 ranking. Probably be ranked number 14 or 13 by next week. All right, and now we move to the main card. And the first fight up with the main card opener in the UFC's featherweight division, you have a barn burner with the number nine ranked Bryce Thug Nasty Mitchell, who comes into the fight with an undefeated professional record of 15 victories and no defeats, going up against the number 14 ranked, also undefeated, Ilya El Matador Topuria, who comes into the fight with a record of 12 victories and no defeats. Somebody's O has got to go. You've got a combined undefeated record of 27 victories with no losses. This is just everything you could ask for in the featherweight division and one of the best examples of premium matchmaking that the UFC's had in quite some time. Look, Mitchell versus Taporia is a great matchup. It's, it's very tough stylistically for both guys. I think there's areas where it's a lot tougher for Bryce Mitchell. There's areas where it could get into some murky waters for Ilya Taporia. We look at some of the stats. I'll break down the stats for this fight. You have Taporia ranked number 14 in the division, and Bryce Mitchell's ranked number 9. So you got a battle between top 15 ranked guys. Whoever wins this fight is more than likely going to be ranked number 8, you know, number 9 in the division, somewhere around there. But yeah, combined record 27-0. Both guys coming off wins. Mitchell, that decision victory over Edson Jr. Barbosa. He even dropped Barbosa with a straight left hand, that right hook into the straight left. Dropped him, got on top of him, constantly got the takedowns. Timed Barbosa coming in to him. Pulled him into the takedown attempts as well. Really, really good work from Mitchell inside the guard of Barbosa. And that's the thing that he's very good at, and that's what Taporia, I think, is going to have to look out for. If he gets taken down by Mitchell... I think Taporia can find his way back up to the feet. He's got good scrambling ability. He's also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. You know, he knows how to fight on the ground. He knows how to move effectively. He knows how to work his way back up to the feet. But inside the guard, Mitchell can literally just sit there while Taporia has that close guard and try to bomb away on him with elbows, punches, then get back into close range, you know, keep the head on the chest and then tripod up with your legs and get into that tripod position and then land some ground and pound, then go back, put the head on the chest, you know, keep control of the opponent's wrist while inside the guard so they can't throw up submission attempts, they can't throw anything off their back and just try to come over the top of the wrist control with the elbows like we saw Cheeto Vera do against Sean O'Malley, you know, stuff like that. I think Mitchell's going to have to make this dirty. Mitchell's going to have to get in his face and be thug nasty. He has to live up to the, his nickname in this fight. Mitchell has to get thug nasty against Taporia in order to win this because if this is a technical battle, if it's a battle that's fought on the outside at kicking range or if it's fought even in boxing range, 
Taporia is going to win this fight. If it's fought at kicking range or boxing range, Taporia is going to win. If it's in clinch range, Mitchell, that's where Mitchell's going to have his most success is in those body locks with those double leg takedowns, you know, getting the, the body lock position and pushing Taporia up against the cage, landing knees, landing knees to the body, landing elbows over the top, looking to drag Taporia off the fence and then redrag him back the opposite direction to get an outside trip. Have Taporia go down to his knees, then try to tripod his way back up, get his back, put the hooks in, you know, look for submission attempts. It's going to be the, the scrambling, the transitions, the takedowns, the clinch game of Bryce Mitchell that's going to win this fight. He's got decent striking. You know, we did a video on this fight on the YouTube channel about three or four weeks ago talking about it, breaking it down. And, you know, Mitchell has good striking. This is similar to the Taporia and Ryan Hall fight, except Mitchell is a little bit more competent on the feet than Ryan Hall. You know, he has better power in his hands. He moves more effectively with his head movement and his footwork. You know, he's able to get out of the way a little bit better. The thing that Taporia, or I'm sorry, the thing that Bryce Mitchell likes to do that I've noticed, you know, he's a southpaw. He's going up against an orthodox fighter in Taporia. He likes to fade off to that rear left side and then come back with his straight right or a straight left hand, come back with a right hook. He's always moving in. You know, he'll fake his way in and then he'll step back to that rear side. He'll fake his way in and then he'll slip and move his way back to that rear side. It's kind of like what Quarantillo does, but that's an orthodox where he'll slip to that rear side and throw that left hook. Mitchell kind of likes to do that in southpaw, but it's with the right hook, but he more uses it as a defensive movement instead of landing any offense from it. It's kind of in and out, in and out. He'll slip his way over to his rear side and then dart his way back out of range. He'll dart his way in, slip, and then, you know, dart his way backwards and slide his way back out of range. So he'll go boom, slip to the rear side, slide his way out. He'll be in, boom, slip, slide his way out. You know, boom, boom, slip, and slide his way back out to that rear side. That in and out, that, you know, in, out, kind of moving around, that's Taporia's game. And that's not a game that I think Mitchell can play here. You can't play that, you know, Matador style against a guy who's literally El Matador. It's not going to work because that's going to draw you into counters. Then Taporia is going to start using a lot more fakes and feints with his hands. He's very good at faking with that lead hand slipping, you know, right, slipping left, then using his slips to drag you into counters. He loves that left body shot. That's going to be there all day against Bryce Mitchell. And that's also going to be a liver shot because the liver is going to be on your right side. That's always going to be there. Boom. To land that shot to the body. I think we're going to see Taporia invest in a lot of body work against Mitchell. The fake, the right hand to the left body hook, you know, the Canelo style combinations with the faint, the right hand, boom, slip with that left hook to the body as you slip to the outside or slip to the inside. I'm sorry. You're going to boom, boom, bop, slip, land that left hook to the body. The body shots of Taporia are going to be a big weapon in this fight against Mitchell. But I understand if he doesn't want to throw them too effectively because if you get that close to his body, that can allow Mitchell to close off that range, get into the over-under clinch positions, and get those takedowns. That is something that Taporia is going to have to look out for. So I feel like we're going to see a little bit more of a Ryan Hall style fight approach where he's going to be fainting in and out, but he's going to be dragging Mitchell into him to land that overhand right, to land the left hook to the body, to land the left hook up top to the head, to land the one-two left hook, left hook to the body overhand right like he did against Jai Herbert. The thing with Taporia is he's very good at picking up on the tendencies of his opponents and making changes as the fight goes. Now, Mitchell's good at that as well, but I don't think those takedowns 
I don't think that Mitchell is going to be able to draw in Taporia to overextend on his punches and then allow Bryce Mitchell to get those takedowns. And while Bryce Mitchell is going to try to pressure and walk forward on Taporia and close that distance, he's going to be open for those counters, the body shots, the left hooks up top, the overhand rights, the straight right hand, you know, the one, two left hook, left hook to the body, left hook to the body, right hand over the top. He's going to be open for those shots as he tries to crash in and close that distance. This fight is going to be Bryce Mitchell being a fish out of water on the feet. Now, you're going to say, well, you kind of said the same thing against uh, Barbosa, and I did pick Barbosa to beat Mitchell. But the thing is, Barbosa isn't as good under pressure with the counter game as Taporia. Taporia is better at fighting calm under pressure. Taporia is better at finding ways to land counters as the opponent might have him hurt, like Jai Herbert did. He had him hurt. He was able to slip off to his rear side drag Herbert in and land over the jab with the overhand right, land over the jab with the straight right hand, then come back with a slip, slip roll. He's very good at staying calm under fire, and that allows him to land his technical striking on the feet. And Barbosa's not like that. If you pressure Barbosa, he always wilts under the pressure. Sometimes he can land good counters. Sometimes he can land big shots and hurt you or potentially knock you out or rock you. But Taporia is way better in that style of fight. And even if Mitchell is pressuring him, Taporia is going to find ways to get off on the angles he needs to, to move laterally, to pull Mitchell into those counter shots, to land that left hook to the body, to land those knees to the body. I mean, even when uh, Ryan Hall went to do like that Iminari style role, he timed one of the times when he lowered his level and he landed a flying knee. But right before that, he tried to go with that rolling to the inside and trying to get the leg lock. He framed off, and then the second time, he timed it with a flying knee. So he's very aware inside the fight. Taporia has a very solid fight IQ. He might have one of the best fight IQs at 145, aside from the champion in Alexander Volkanovsky. He's so well-rounded in all aspects of the game. And even if Mitchell takes down Taporia, he's good at scrambling. He's good at working his way back up to the feet. He has a good guillotine. He has good submission attempts. He's not easy to take down. I mean, you look at the grappling aspects of Taporia. Taporia has a 100% takedown defense rate. He's never even been taken down. And Bryce Mitchell has a 52% takedown accuracy. Now, I know, you know, Mitchell will pair his, you know, string his takedown attempts together. He'll go in, he'll go in, you know, tying up. He'll go to a body lock. He'll go to a single leg. He'll go back to the double leg. You know, he'll go back to the body lock and try to break your posture down. He is good at tying the takedown attempts together. But against a guy in Taporia who's never even been taken down and he's so good at managing the distance and the range and keeping it at the distance that he wants the fight to be at with the power that he possesses and the technical ability on the feet, this is a horrible matchup for Bryce Mitchell. And I'm honestly shocked to see Taporia only be a minus 135, minus 150 favorite. I thought coming into this fight, they were going to have Taporia at over minus 200. That's how confident I am in Ilya Taporia. I think this is just a terrible matchup for Bryce Mitchell. And the areas where Mitchell is good, it's going to be extremely difficult for him to get Taporia down in those areas, to get him into the wheelhouse where Mitchell needs to be to have success. I mean, we even saw in certain aspects of the Barbosa fight, when things don't start to go too well for Mitchell on the feed. He kind of backtracks. He kind of gets a little worried. He kind of moves a little bit and has a little bit of a, oh, I got to get a takedown like right now. Like not all the time. And he's very good at timing the opponents and pulling them into takedowns, which he did against Barbosa. But 
I mean, I think if Taporia starts landing on the feet, he's just going to continue to land. It's going to draw out the takedown attempts of Mitchell, and it's going to make the striking game and the fakes and feints of Taporia a lot more effective in this matchup. I expect the finish from Ilya Taporia here. I think early on it's going to be close. I think Mitchell might get one takedown early on, but Taporia will work his way back up to the feet. He'll defend the submission attempts of Mitchell, and then after that he's going to dictate that range. He's going to step in, step out, step in, step in, step out. He's going to be drawing that imaginary line and pulling Mitchell into all these counters, and Mitchell's defense isn't the best. Like I said, he likes to pull a lot to that rear side, step in, step out, throw some kicks. If he tries to go with wheel kicks or round kicks against Ilya Taporia, he's going to get countered. I mean, even the wheel kick that Ryan Hall tried to throw against Ilya Taporia, he was able to move with it and then go off to the opposite side and even, you know, get a hold of Ryan Hall. And then that ended up going into the scramble where Taporia eventually trapped the arm and just bombed away on his face. He can pick up on patterns. He's good at downloading the data. He's good at finding counters. He's good at adjusting throughout the 15 minutes. This is a win-win situation for Taporia, and I think he really shines in this spot. I'm going to go with Taporia via second-round knockout. I think he's going to work the body early. I think it's going to be harder for him to pick up on the timing early in the fight, but eventually that overhand right, that left hook, that left body shot, the right straight behind it, the uppercuts from the rear side to the body. I mean, those are going to be big weapons, the body work especially, from Taporia is going to be a big weapon against Mitchell. I think he works the body early, and then he finds an opening for that right hand right to the chin, and he knocks out Bryce Mitchell. I think it's similar to the Jai Herbert, left shot to the body, boom, right hand over the top. He knocks Bryce Mitchell out cold and gives him his first loss in professional mixed martial arts. So my pick is going to be Ilya El Matador Topuria, the number 14-ranked featherweight in the division, to improve to 13-0 as a professional mixed martial artist by defeating Bryce Mitchell via second-round knockout victory. Um, money line Topuria all day here. Money line minus 150. Yeah, that, that's the best bet. If you want to go... A second best bet, I don't think the line is out yet, but fight doesn't go the distance. You're going to be Taporia on the money line or fight doesn't go the distance. I think fight doesn't go the distance might be like minus 115. It could be plus money depending on um, I, you know, what the line's going to be, but I think it'll be in the similar range like minus 120, plus 110, somewhere around there. Either fight doesn't go the distance. If you're on the side of Mitchell and you think he's going to be able to grind it out, then maybe you just play money line on Mitchell at plus 130. But I think minus 150 is a steal for Taporia. I think either minus 150 Taporia is your best bet overall. Then the second best bet would be fight does not go to decision. If you want to play the Taporia KO prop, I like that as well. That's not out yet. But when that line drops, I like Taporia by knockout. So I'm going to list my best bets for the fight in, in order. Taporia on the money line at minus 150. Fight doesn't go the distance or fight doesn't go to decision is probably going to be like minus 120 plus 110 somewhere around there. And your third best bet, which will probably give you, I would say plus 200 odds, maybe higher, maybe a little bit lower, would be um, Ilya Taporia to win via knockout. If it's not over plus 200, I would just play the money line at minus 150 on Ilya Taporia because you're not getting a lucrative bet to pick the exact winning method, but I do think Taporia finds the chin of Mitchell and knocks him out. So money line Taporia is your best bet at minus 150. Second best bet is fight does not go the distance, probably minus 120 plus 110, somewhere around there. And then maybe Taporia at KOTKO as long as it's over the plus 200 odds. 
but I'm going Ilya Taporia via second round knockout over Bryce Thug Nasty Mitchell. All right, up next is a battle in the UFC's middleweight division between top 15 ranked fighters and the number nine ranked former welterweight and welterweight title challenger in Darren the Gorilla Till, who makes his return to the UFC, coming in with a record of 18 victories, four defeats, and one no contest. Going up against the former KSW world champion, former KSW two-weight world champion, and the number 13-ranked Drykus Stillnox Duplessis, who comes into the fight with a record of 17 victories and two defeats. This is a really, really solid fight here. Duplessis versus Till is going to be a barn burner for as long as it lasts. Whether it goes 15 minutes, if it goes the full 15, we're probably going to get one of the best fights of the year, or it's going to be... You know, a really technical fight where not all, you know, neither guy really commits on anything. But with a guy like Duplessis, I can't really see a fight where he doesn't commit. Even if he's getting caught, he's still going to be committing to his shots. He's still going to be coming in. He's still going to be stepping into range. And he's still going to be looking to bomb away on you. I mean, the guy has big power. He's got wrestling and grappling ability, too. We saw it in the UFC a little bit. Um, he almost locked up Trevin Giles in that guillotine choke with that uh, shin across the belly with the opposite foot on the uh, with the foot on the opposite hip over the top. Um, you know, we've seen his grappling ability in some of his other fights. You look at his overall record, he's 17 and 2 is Duplessis. But when you look at the overall wins, you know, he's got 16 out of 17 wins coming by way of finish. Seven KOTKOs and nine submissions. Out of his two losses, those are finishes as well. One KO, one submission. He's only had one fight go to decision, and that was that win in his last fight against Brad Tavares in a fight where he looked outgunned early on. Like, Tavares definitely won the first round. He caught him with a left hook. He was catching him with an overhand. He hurt him at the end of the first round, I believe, did Duplessis with a left hook. As he stepped into range, he switched southpaw and banged the left hook, if I remember correctly. And it knocked Tavares off balance, and then, you know, he closed the distance again. But he gets hurt in a lot of his fights. Even the knockout victory over Trevin Giles, I mean, he got caught. He got stunned. His legs went out from under him. He went up against the cage. You know, Giles kind of thought he had him hurt. He stopped for a second. And then Duplessis launched a right hand in on him, darted right in, and knocked him out cold. Duplessis it does not have the best cardio but even when he looks tired he can still bomb away on you he can still land his power he can land his kicks left kick from southpaw left kick to the body low kicks high kicks you know mixing it up switching southpaw land in the straight left hand the right hand behind it a lot of the times when he comes in with those darting combinations which is mainly all of his combinations because he throws everything with like a hundred percent power He's going to dart in and kind of square off his stance. So he'll go straight left, switch, straight right, straight right, right, straight left. And he'll dart his way in with those long punches. It's kind of like a Patty Pimblet, which I talked about on the UFC 282 preview show with Mike Finch a couple weeks back. If you haven't checked that out, after you're done watching this podcast, go back and watch the UFC 282 preview show with Mike Finch on my YouTube channel and on the podcast wherever you're listening to this right now. Excuse me, I had to take a drink. But, yeah, I mean, look, Duplessis is going to have the power advantage and Till's going to have the technical striking advantage. You know, Duplessis hasn't lost inside the UFC yet. He came into the UFC after that TKO win in the second round. At, uh, or, I'm sorry, he came into the UFC after that guillotine choke submission in the first round at EFC 83 over Brendan Lesser. 
He lost to Roberto Soldich in the third round via KOTKO, but before that, he knocked out Roberto Soldich back in the second round at KSW 43 in 2018. Since he's been in the UFC, he's on a three-fight win streak, and two of those fights come by way of finish. He has that knockout victory over Marcus Perez, where Perez tried to go with a spinning elbow up against the cage, and Duplessis caught him with a shot right on the ear, dropped him, and knocked him out. Then he has that knockout victory over Trevin Giles, where he got hurt early on, but he bombed on him with a right hand as he got hurt. Giles had his hands down, chin up in the air, boom, bang right on the chin, knocked him out. And then the Tavares win was a war. I mean, they went back and forth, but he picked it up in the second. He picked it up in the third. The power, every time he landed on Tavares, like it was hurting him the longer the fight went. But early on, he was open for so many counters against Tavares. I mean, the left hook was landing. The right hand was landing. He was constantly catching him with counters, and every time he was hitting him, he was stopping him in his tracks. But, you know, Duplessis is so explosive. He has so much power. He's like a war machine. I mean, the guy just comes forward, and he's like a blitzkrieg and a buzzsaw. He's just going to try to throw a power into everything that he throws. Is he open for counters? Yes. But does he have a lot of power, and can he knock just about anybody out? Yeah, I think he does. He doesn't look the best technically. He kind of freezes up when shots get thrown at him and overreacts, you know, with his head movement and stuff. Kind of like a Khabib. Whenever he would get uh, strikes thrown at him, he'd kind of pick his chin up in the air and block with the rear hand and kind of like freak out a little bit whenever the shots were coming at him, especially early in his career. I see the same thing from Duplessis in the way that he defends a lot of these shots. Like he'll pull his head out of the way. He'll try to back up, but his high guard and stuff isn't the best. He doesn't have the best defense because he's throwing so hard and he's extending so far into these shots that he leaves his chin up in the air to get countered against the guy in Darren Till who, you know, it's kind of a sad story for Till in the UFC. I mean, he's not the best in terms of his recent record. But, man, I mean, he came into the UFC and he was on a tear, dude. He's got 18 victories, four losses. Three out of those four losses come by way of finish. Two submission losses, one by KO, TKO. He got knocked out by Jorge Masvidal. And then he got submitted by Tyron Woodley and uh, Derek Brunson, which was his last fight. And then out of his 18 victories, he's got 12 wins by way of finish, 10 by KO, TKO, 2 by submission, and 6 via decision, 1 draw overall in his professional MMA career. But lately, I mean, since he suffered his first loss in professional MMA, he's 1-4 in in the UFC. Prior to that, I mean, he was an undefeated fighter. He was going on a tear in the UFC, but he got submitted by Woodley in the second round of his title fight at UFC 228. He got knocked out in the second round over Jorge Masvidal, where he rushed in with that faint stance switch from orthodox to southpaw, but then he came back into orthodox and cracked him with an overhand right, knocked him out cold. He came back and fought Kelvin Gastelum and won a decision. It was a split decision, but I definitely think Till won that fight. It was close, but he he fought the style of fight that he wanted to, and he won. He came back, fought Robert Whitaker, had a close fight, dropped Whitaker with an elbow, a step and elbow. Whitaker dropped him with a right hand, uh, that darting in right hand that Whitaker likes to throw. It was back and forth. The Whitaker fight was very competitive. It could have been, I think it was 3-2 for Robert Whitaker. So maybe you could have given it to Till if Whitaker wouldn't have got that knockdown. But a very close and competitive fight um, against Robert Whitaker at UFC on ESPN 14 back in July of 2020. And then after that, he came back in September of 2021 and lost via third round submission to Derek, Brum Derek Brunson. And uh, yeah, so the decision loss to Whitaker, 
the knockout loss to Masvidal, the submission loss to Woodley, and then the submission loss to Brunson. I think uh, Duplessis is live for a submission here. Like I said, I mean, he's got a lot of submissions on his record. And if Till leaves that neck out there, then he could get submitted. But you have to look at Darren Till's recent training camps and stuff. Like, he hasn't looked great, but he's getting into shape. He's training out there in Sweden with Hamza Chemaev at All-Stars. I mean, he's got one of the best grapplers in MMA in his camp. So if Darren Till's takedown defense, if his wrestling, if his distance control hasn't gotten better, then I don't know what he's been doing out there with Chemaev, but I expect to see better takedown defense. I think we might see some clinch trips from Darren Till because Duplessis is kind of all over the place with the way that he explodes and moves. He might time him, get him in the over-under clinch or get him in the single collar or the tie plum and use some inside or outside trips to try to take down Duplessis. But I don't think we're going to see Till really resort to the wrestling because Duplessis is such a submission threat, even though we haven't really seen it in the UFC. He has submissions on his record. He's gotten multiple submission victories. And if they get into a scramble, I could see Duplessis getting a submission against Darren Till. I could 100% see it. I mean, you look at the stats overall with Duplessis versus Till. We'll pull it up right now. You're going to have... A 74.5-inch reach for Till to a 76-inch reach for Duplessis. Even though Duplessis has the inch-and-a-half reach advantage, I think Till dictates the range and uses his reach better because he doesn't overextend on too many of his punches. And he uses more of his footwork uh, when it comes to dictating the range when Duplessis just uses long strides and movements and stance changes and really darts in with his punches and explodes to try to land those bombs on your chin. So the better manager of range is Till, even though it says that Duplessis has the bigger reach, um, Till's going to be using it better than Duplessis will. And we're going to see Till be dictating the range in this fight if it stays at that distance. Uh, leg reach, 42-inch leg reach for Till, 43-inch leg reach for Duplessis. Uh, One-inch height advantage, 6-1 for Dreykus to 6 feet for Darren Till. Um, Till coming off a loss like we already talked about. Duplessis coming off the decision win over Brad Tavares. When you look at win percentages, uh, 56% of the wins come by way of KOTKO for Till, 11 by submission, and 33% via decision. Duplessis, on the other hand, he's got 100% of his wins coming by way of finish. I mean, out of 18 victories, or I'm sorry, he's got one win by way of decision. The rest are finishes in his whole entire career. I mean, 44% of the wins by way of KOTKO, 56% of the wins, almost a 60% win rate via submission. And that's why I think Duplessis could be live for a submission here. Um, but Till just with his chin up in the air, Duplessis with his chin up in the air, man, this is a close fight. This is honestly a pick in my opinion. Average fight time, 13 minutes, 41 seconds for the gorilla Darren Till to eight minutes and 21 seconds for Dreykus Duplessis. Um, looking at the fight overall, like, look, if Till's able to keep that outside foot on Duplessis and Southpaw against the orthodox fighter, um, He's going to be able to dictate the fight, like the left kick to the body, the front kicks, the straight left hand, the right hooks, stepping to the outside foot, constantly angling off. If it's a technical striking battle, then Till's going to win that fight. You know, that's the style of fight. The counters of Till are going to be there because Duplessis keeps his chin in the air. You know, the outside footwork, the movement, that's going to be there for Till if he can fight at that range. But Duplessis explodes. He explodes in with stance switching combinations, the straight rights, the straight lefts, 
the body kicks, the overhands, the hooks, right hand, switch to southpaw, bang the left hook, one, two, in orthodox, switch southpaw, bang the left hook, southpaw, straight left, right hook, switch back, right hook, left hook from orthodox. I mean, he switches his stances. He goes on awkward angles. Yeah, he's not the best defensively. Yeah, he rushes in, and that's going to be a recipe for disaster against Till, but Till just hasn't really looked himself, and I really don't really have the faith I don't have the faith in Darren Till that I once did. I've picked him against Brunson. I've picked him to beat Woodley. I mean, I've picked him in so many fights, and he just continues to let me down. And I picked him against Kelvin Gastelum, and he got the job done there. Um, I picked him against Whitaker, I believe. I might have picked Whitaker in that fight. I think I, I think I picked Whitaker. I think I picked Whitaker. I'm going to be honest. I think I picked Whitaker. I'm not 100% sure. You could go back and check the podcast, tell me if I'm right or wrong, but... I, I know that Till is going to be the more technical guy. I know Till is going to manage range better. I know Till is going to be the sharper, crisper striker on the feet. But the power of Duplessis, the ability to throw himself into the fire, like eventually he's going to get burned, but I just don't have the faith that Till is going to be the guy to do it at this point in his career. Yes, he's been training with Chemayev. Yes, he's been out at All-Stars. Yes, he's probably worked on his wrestling, worked on his striking, got into better shape, got better technically. But he's also been on a long layoff. I mean, look, the last time the guy was consistently active, We'll pull it up real quick. The last time he was consistently active was when he lost to Tyron Woodley. I mean, he he fought one time. Let's see, how many times in 2018? He fought twice in 2018, twice in 2019, once in 2020, and once in 2021. So from 2020 to 2022, two, Till will only have had three fights, one fight per year. I just think it's time where the division is going to pass him by. I thought Derek Brunson was a tailor-made matchup for Till to get back on track, and he hurt him at one point, couldn't get the finish, got taken down over and over, and eventually got submitted. I just think Duplessis is too much. I think he's a better grappler. I think he has more power on the feet. I think even though Till has the better technical ability and the better ability to get the outside foot and really throw his punches and you know, use that technical striking and time Duplessis coming in with like a push-pull, kind of like we talked about with Chris Curtis earlier. I think Till's going to be open for the counters, and I think he's going to get dropped and knocked out by Dreykus Duplessis. I could see a submission on the side of Duplessis in this fight as well. Like he got submitted by Brunson. I could see Duplessis catching him, dropping him, jumping on him, and taking his neck in a rear naked choke and getting a submission. I think he gets he's very live for a submission. Whatever the line is, I mean, I'm not going to tell you that that's the best bet on the fight, but I think Duplessis by submission is 100% a possibility. Um, you look at the line for this fight in terms of odds, and you're going to have Duplessis as a slight favorite at a minus 140 to a plus 120 underdog for Till. Um, I know a lot of people are going to be siding with Darren Till and are going to want to take the underdog shot. And this is a favorable matchup for him in terms of the striking game. So I could see why you want to do that. But I just don't think that's the side here. I think you have to take Duplessis as a slight favorite. You have to take Duplessis in this fight. I just don't have faith in Till anymore. His chin's always up in the air. He pulls away from a lot of shots. And although Duplessis is the same way with his defense not really being there, his defense is kind of inconsistent or non-existent, I should say. I think the power of Duplessis, the explosion, and the ability to fall back on the submission game and the grappling, if it goes wrong for him on the feet, he can mix up his striking, he can mix up his takedowns. He's the more well-rounded fighter, and I just have to go with Dreykus Duplessis here to get the win. I'm going to go with Duplessis via finish. I'm going to go with Dreykus, still knocks Duplessis 
to get a knockout victory over Till. I could see the submission, but I just think Till's chin's going to be up in the air when Duplessis lands one of those bombs. I mean, he knocked out Trevin Giles, knocked out Marcus Perez. He hurt Tavares multiple times in the fight and survived getting hurt by Tavares, who's one of the best middleweights in the world, even though he's kind of fallen off as of recently. Um, I got to go with Duplessis to just find that chin of Darren Till on one of those lunging straight rights or straight lefts. And knockout Darren Till. I'm going to go with a second round knockout for Duplessis. Like, I think if Till fights technically, if he keeps that outside foot, stays at the range he wants to and can avoid the explosions and counter Duplessis as he rushes in, then yeah, he can win. But I just don't have faith in Darren Till at this point. I was a big Darren Till fan. Like I said, I picked him to beat Woodley for the title. I thought this guy was going to be you know, one of the best guys in that division at welterweight. And then he moves up to middleweight. I thought that was going to be a better weight class for him because he had terrible weight cuts. And he had some decent performances, like the performance against Gastelum. Even though he lost to Whitaker, it was a decent win. But I just, or a decent performance from him. But I just can't pick him, man. I can't side with Till at this point. And even though he's better technically, Duplessis just has too many avenues to win this fight. And I got to go with Duplessis to get the knockout. So, when it looks, when you look at the betting line, uh, Duplessis is a minus, let's see, minus 140 to plus 120 for Darren Till. Like we already talked about it a little bit, but I like Duplessis uh, on the money line at minus 140. Um, I, I'm not like huge into betting this fight because I could see, you know, him getting countered by Till with his chin up in the air, getting dropped and getting finished. Like it's a close fight. Don't get me wrong. Um, I don't love this fight from a betting perspective. I would say the best bet overall, like depending on what the line is, if it's anywhere like minus 200 and under, you would play fight doesn't go the distance because I don't necessarily think it's going to go all 15 minutes. I think we'll get a finish on either side, but I got a side with Duplessis. But best bet overall in terms of the betting perspective would be the fight doesn't go the distance. Then I would play... Um, probably Duplessis on the money line, and then maybe Duplessis via submission. I I, I could see him getting the submission, and I feel like the line's going to be juicy. Like, I could see Till giving up his neck and getting subbed by Duplessis. So the third best bet in the sneaky bet for this fight would be Duplessis to win via submission. I'm going to go by knockout, which is why I said money line's like the best, but I like the submission line. Like, I could see it definitely happening, but... My pick is going to be Dreykus Duplessis to defeat Darren Till via second-round knockout. All right, and now we move to the co-main event of the evening in the UFC's lightweight division between Paddy the Baddy Pimblet, who comes into the fight with a record of 19 victories and three defeats, going up against Jared Flash Gordon, who comes in with an identical record of 19 victories and five defeats. Look, I understand why this is the co-main event because it's Patty the Batty. It's Patty Pimblet. Like, of course he's going to be the co-main event. You know, he makes a lot of money. He's got a big fan base. He's got a lot of people behind him, does Patty Pimblet. But should this be the co-main event? No. I mean, realistically, if I'm going through the card right now, I think you could put you could have put Till and Duplessis as the co-main event. You could have put Mitchell and Taporia as the co-main event. But I understand why. Patty the Batty got the co-main event slot. I mean, he's got the big fan base. It's going to be in Vegas. They're gonna, you're going to hear, oh, Patty the Batty, 
Oh, Betty the Betty. Like, that's going to be what you're going to hear for this fight throughout the crowd, during the fight, before the fight. Throughout the entire night, that's what people are going to be chanting. But Jared Gordon is no joke. Like, this is not a walk in the park for Petty Pimblet. This is not, oh, it's going to be, he's going to go in there, knock him out. It's going to be easy. Petty's not going to take any damage. Like, this isn't an easy fight, realistically, or stylistically, for Patty Pimblet. Like, Gordon has fought a lot of guys. He's beat guys that a lot of people thought were going to walk right through him. Like his last fight with Leonardo Santos, like the fight with Joe Selecki. I mean, I picked against Gordon in both of those fights, and he proved me wrong. Just his gritty style, his forward pressure, his counter ability, his grappling, the, the transitions he uses on the floor. Like Jared Gordon's a good grappler, but people don't give him credit because he's not the most popular. Like the fan base is all going to be on the side of Patty Pimblet. But you know, realistic mixed martial arts game, like Gordon's not an easy fight for anybody. Like, is he the best in the division? No. Like, do I think he's going to be a champion? No. Do I think it's a favorable matchup for Patty? Yeah, I would say so. But do I think it's an easy fight? No, absolutely not. I mean, you look at Jared Gordon, 19 and 5. He's got eight wins by way of finish, six by KOTKO, two by submission, and then 11 victories by way of decision with his losses. He's been knocked out in four out of those five losses and submitted in one. So all five of his losses do come by way of finish. If it goes to the scorecards, you know, he's always got his hand raised. 11 wins by way of decision out of 19 wins. You look at his last few fights, he's got that decision victory over Leonardo Santos. Prior to that, he lost to Grant Dawson via third-round rear naked choke submission. Before that, he won a split decision over Joe Selecki. I backed Selecki heavy in that fight, um, and he was able to just pressure him, you know, survive, scramble, continue to out position Joe Selecki the longer the fight went. First round, he got outgrappled easy. Joe Selecki outgrappled him easily. But the longer the fight went, the pace, the cardio, the pressure of of um, Jared Gordon just got to Joe Selecki and he was able to out control him and, or I'm sorry, out position him and control him on the mat. Prior to that, he had a decision victory over Danny Chavez, a decision victory over Chris Fishgold. Then he lost to the former lightweight champion, one of the best lightweights in the world, and Charles Oliveira got knocked out in the first round. Decision win over Dan Murray. Uh, prior to that, a knockout loss to Joaquin Silva, a TKO loss to Diego Ferreira, which doesn't look terrible. Decision win over Hakran Diaz, a TKO in round two over Michael Quinones. Prior to that, it was a decision win over Bill Elgio. That was back in CFFC at CFFC 63. But since he's been in the UFC, I mean, his losses have come to Diego Ferreira, Joaquin Silva, Charles Oliveira, and Grant Dawson. Like, the guy doesn't lose to slouches. I mean, you know, he beats a lot of good guys, but a loss to the champion, a former champion in Oliveira, not a bad loss. A loss to that up-and-coming prospect in Grant Dawson, not a bad loss. I mean, the loss to Diego Ferreira. Ferreira's a great lightweight. He's a he's not a top contender, but he's definitely up there in the upper echelon of the 155-pound division. Like, this isn't an easy fight. Gordon has good grappling. He's got good wrestling ability, good takedowns, good top control. Like, if Patty winds up on the bottom, I do think Gordon does have the potential to control him. You go and look at Patty Pimblett, 19 and 5 over, or I'm sorry, 19 and 3 overall as a professional mixed martial artist. Out of those 19 victories, 15 wins come by way of finish. He's got six KOTKOs and nine submissions. Four wins coming by way of decision. Out of his three losses, he's been submitted once. The other two losses came via decision. 
But late, uh, lately in his career, I mean, even before the UFC, he's currently on a five-fight win streak. Three of those wins coming inside the UFC. Prior to that, it was a submission victory over David Martinez at Cage Warriors 122 in the first round, and then a TKO in the first round over Decky Dalton at Cage Warriors 113. Then he lost that decision to Soren Bach. That was uh, back in September of 2018. But in the UFC, he's got a knockout victory in the first round over Luigi Vendramini. Vendramini cracked him with that stance switch right outside low kick into southpaw. The left hook behind it cracked Patty Pimblett. Landed flush right on the chin. Spun his head around. Wobbled him. Took him down. But then Patty came back and ended up catching Luigi Vendramini with a long straight right hand. A left hook, a right hook, a left hook, a right hook up against the cage and knocked him out in the first round. So Patty can survive those hard you know, battles. He can survive being hurt. He can survive unadvantageous positions and come back and find a way to win. He won in the first round via rear naked choke over Rodrigo Vargas. That was in his second fight in the UFC. And then most recently in his last fight, he submits Jordan Levitt in the second round via rear naked choke. So one knockout and two submission victories for Patty Pimblett in his three fights in the UFC. He probably should have gotten a bigger step up in competition. Yes, I would agree with that. I think Patty the Batty should have gotten a bigger step up in competition. But this is a good fight for Patty Pimblett. It's not like a terrible matchup. It's not a trash can. They're not giving him an awful fight. Do I think uh, Jared Flash Gordon is a co-main event style of fighter? No. Do I think this should be the co-main event? No, but I like I said, I understand why because of Patty Pimblett's following, his fan base. Like everybody's going to be tuning into this fight for Patty Pimblett. But when it comes down to the breakdown, I could see Gordon getting some takedowns. I could see him controlling on the floor for a little bit. But I think even if it's on the mat and with Gordon in that advantageous position in the top position controlling him, I think eventually Patty's going to look for arm bars. He's going to look to sweep Jared Gordon. He's going to look to take the back. And I just think he's going to outscramble Jared Gordon even if it goes into the grappling. I think, yes, Gordon is the better wrestler. He's the better takedown artist. And, you know, 8 out of 10 times the wrestler is going to beat the jiu-jitsu artist. But I think these are those 2 out of 10 where the jiu-jitsu artist can beat the wrestler. Like, Gordon's a good wrestler. He has good takedowns, good scrambling ability, good ability to remain on top even in, you know, wild scrambles. But Patty Pimblett is so much more of a submission threat. I feel like he can lock up arm bars, which can cause Gordon to pull out and give him, you know, a disadvantageous position. He can give up his back. I think in one of those scrambles, Patty Pimblett is going to find the back of Jared Gordon, and I think he's going to get another rear naked choke submission. I think it's submission here for Patty. I could see um, Gordon getting caught on the feet and knocked out. Like I said, in every one of his losses, he's been finished. He has been knocked out before, you know, got knocked out by Charles Oliveira. He got submitted by Grant Dawson. He's been knocked out before. I think Patty with his long rangy shots, I think that long right hand, the left hook behind it, the front kicks up the middle to the body, all the long rangy shots of Patty Pimblett are going to be used in this fight. He's going to be using the front kicks. He's going to be using the jabs, the crosses, the long straight shots to try to beat Gordon, who likes to pressure forward, who likes to make it dirty, who likes to get into that single collar clinch, into the double unders, you know, land some short shots and then rip you to the body and up top to the head. He's got to make it a dirty fight. Like Gordon cannot fight this technical and tactical because of the long range and distance of a Patty Pimblet. Like Gordon and, and Patty are pretty close 
in terms of the height, 5'9 to 5'10. But Pimblet's going to be coming into this fight with a 5-inch reach advantage, a 73-inch reach to a 68-inch reach for Gordon. If Gordon's on the outside, he's getting picked apart with front kicks. He's getting hit with round kicks, outside low kicks. Straight one twos right down the middle. He's going to be getting caught with uppercuts up the middle. I think Patty's going to use that double jab and follow up with the rear uppercut, kind of like a Hanato Moicano. I think the uppercuts, the front kicks, all the stuff up the center channel is going to work really well for Patty Pimblett. But I think eventually one of those long right hands is going to catch Gordon on the chin. He's going to panic wrestle. Patty's going to spin around, take the back, get the hooks in, and get the rear naked choke submission. I'm going to go with Patty the Batty Pimblett to win this fight via a second round rear naked choke submission. I think Gordon's a tough opponent. I don't think Gordon should be taken lightly and written off completely. There is a possibility that he is able to outscramble Patty. He is able to wind up on top, is able to pressure him up against the cage and make this a boring fight and potentially get a decision. But I can't see this fight going the distance. And if I can't see the fight going the distance, then I have to side with Patty Pimblett here because not only has, you know, Gordon been finished, uh, you know, a bunch of times in the UFC, all of his losses come by way of finish. He doesn't lose decisions. And I can't see Patty losing to Jared Gordon. And I think he just finally gives up his back and gets submitted. I could see Patty knocking him out. Like I said, with the long straight shots, the one twos down the middle, I think can catch Gordon on the chin. I think that's actually what happens. He gets caught on the chin, wobbled, panic wrestles. Patty takes the neck, you know, spins the back, takes the neck, put the hooks in. And gets the rear naked choke. So my pick is the minus 190 favorite in Patty, the Batty Pimblet, to defeat Jared Flash Gordon via a second round rear naked choke submission. Um, when it comes to breaking down the fight, you know, from a betting perspective, I could see people jumping on the dog and Jared Gordon because of his experience in the UFC, because he's been around for a long time. But I think Patty Pimblet on the money line is a great parlay piece. I think he might be, you know, pushed a little bit harder after this fight and the line might not be as low as this. And this isn't even a low line. Like it says minus 190 here, but I'm pretty sure he's like minus 210, minus 220 on some lines at this point. So even that, like you're not going to get it much lower than that um, in his next few fights. So I think if you're going to jump on a money line bet for Patty, this is going to be the spot to do it. I like Patty Pimblett on the money line. Um, I like fight does not go the distance depending on what the line is put at. I think fight doesn't go the distance or Pimblet on the money line are your best bet. I also think Pimblet inside the distance is a really solid bet. And those would probably be the top three I would give you. And then for a juicy bet, kind of like the last fight we talked about, it would be Patty Pimblet to win via submission. I picked him to submit Jordan Levitt. I actually bet on him to beat Levitt by submission and he got it done, but it was paired with some other stuff. So I didn't get the win that night, but I think a submission is definitely live here. For Patty, especially with his submission attempts and his scrambling ability, he's very good off his back. He's very intelligent, especially if he has his feet close to the cage. He can kick off and, you know, shrimp his hips and move in an advantageous position, If even if he's on the bottom, potentially locking up an armbar or a triangle. But I think he finds the back and takes the neck of Jared Gordon. So I like the submission prop for Patty Pimblett as well. So if I'm going to give you the top three bets for this fight, it's going to be Pimblett on the money line. Uh, fight does not go the distance, and then Patty Pimblett to win via submission. I think those are your best bets for this fight overall, but my overall pick is Patty the Batty Pimblett to defeat Jared Flash Gordon via second round rear naked choke. All right, and now we get to the main event of the evening for the now vacant UFC light heavyweight championship, and what was formerly going to be the co-main event, now it's a five-rounder in the main event, 
For the vacant light heavyweight title, you have the number three ranked Jan Blahovich, who comes into the fight with a record of 29 victories and nine defeats, going up against the number four ranked Magomed Ankalaev, who comes into the fight with a record of 18 victories and one defeat. Who will walk out as the new UFC light heavyweight champion and have a fight with Yuri Prohaska lined up in their future, or potentially Glover Teixeira because Yuri's going to be out for over a year? Um, look, this is a good fight. It's solid. I could see either man winning it, and I'm going to start it off by saying that. I could see Blahovich catching Ankalaev on the chin and knocking him out. I could see Ankalaev dancing around on the outside, keeping the outside foot, using that lead right foot to continue to get that outside angle, landing the straight lefts, landing the front kicks, landing the left high kicks, the right hook behind it, shifting off to that rear side, landing the check right hook over the top. You know, I could see this fight playing out in a multitude of ways. And before we get into the breakdown, let's look at some of the stats. Both guys coming off wins. Blahovich in that freak injury, um, TKO-style win over Alexander Rakic in his last fight. Magomed Ankalaev via TKO over Anthony Smith in round two of their fight. You look at the stats, 6-2 for Jan Blahovich to 6-3 for Ankalaev. You've got a 78-inch reach for Blahovich to a 75-inch reach for Ankalaev. Even though Blahovich has a 3-inch reach advantage, Ankalaev is going to be the guy who's going to be using that reach and distance a lot better. So even though you look and you see that Blahovich has the longer reach, the guy who's going to be fighting from a, a further range, the guy who's going to be dictating the range, is going to be Ankalaev in this fight. He's going to be looking to land that straight left and then shift off to his lead right side and pivot off, get the outside foot, constantly looking for those outside angles. He's one of the most elusive light heavyweights, you know, that have ever graced the game. And I mean, the guy can move very effortlessly for his size, and that's going to be a problem for Blahovich in this fight, I believe. You look at the reach, like I said, three-inch reach advantage for Blahovich, but that's not really going to tell the whole story. Leg reach, two-inch leg reach advantage, 46 inches to 44 inches for Blahovich. Uh, win percentages, you go on the side of Blahovich, you have 31% of the wins by way of KO, TKO, 31% of the wins by way of submission, and 38% via decision. 62% uh, finish rate in terms of his wins, 38% decision rate. On the side of Ankalaev, you have 56% of the wins coming by way of KO, TKO, and 44% coming by way of uh, decision, no submissions. So all of his finishes come by way of KO, TKO. You look at the average fight time, it's pretty close. Blahovich 12 minutes and 20 seconds to Ankalaev's 11 minutes and 10 seconds. Knockdown average per 15-minute fight, 0.41 for the former champion in Blahovich to 0.81 for Magomed Ankalaev. You look at the significant strikes. You got 3.55 significant strikes landed per minute on the side of Blahovich. Uh, to 3.64 landed on the side of Magomed Ankalaev. Very close in terms of significant strikes landed per minute. Um, the accuracy is going to be on the side of the number three ranked Ankalaev. Hold on. I'm sorry. The number four ranked Ankalaev. He is going to have a 54% significant strike rate to a 49% for Jan Blahovich. Strikes absorbed per minute. Ankalaev is better defensively. He takes less shots. 2.77 strikes absorbed per minute for Jan Blahovich to 2.14 for Magomed Ankalaev. A 54% striking defense rate for Blahovich, which is very high in the light heavyweight division, compared to a 60% uh, 
striking defense rate for Ankalaev. I mean, the guy is not easy to hit clean. You have to literally just find that little sliver of an opening to crack any crack uh, Ankalaev on the chin. And if anybody can do it, it's definitely going to be Blahovich. But it's an uphill battle for him in this fight, especially when it comes to the striking game. You look at the overall grappling in the fight, you're going to have a 1.08 takedown average per 15-minute fight for Blahovich to a 0.94 for Ankalaev. So although I think Ankalaev is the better grappler offensively and defensively, Blahovich actually shoots more takedowns per a 15-minute contest. You saw him showcase his wrestling a lot against Adesanya. He got taken down by Rakic, you know, got taken down by Teixeira, but he does like to use his wrestling if he can. Takedown accuracy is also going to be on the side of Blahovich with a 53% takedown accuracy compared to a 33% accuracy for Ankalaev. But Ankalaev doesn't really look to resort to his grappling. He can grapple. He has good top control, good ground and pound, but he's never really going to be the one to initiate that grappling side. He more defends it, reverses it, gets into an advantageous position, and then can bomb away from you when uh, he's in the top position. Takedown defense, an 86% takedown defense rate for Ankalaev to a 66% takedown defense rate for Blahovich. Even though we just talked about Ankalaev not really using his wrestling and takedowns in an offensive manner, um, look at for him to be able to defend all the takedowns of Blahovich. Maybe Blahovich gets one when he catches Ankalaev off balance, maybe inside the clinch, but I don't really see Blahovich being able to take down Ankalaev. And if anybody's going to get a takedown, it's going to be on the side of Magomed, in my opinion. Submission average, we don't really have to pay too much attention to that overall. And then for the odds, you have Ankalaev as a massive minus 240 favorite to a plus 200 dog on the side of Jan Blahovich and the former champion. Look, this is an uphill battle for Blahovich. And, you know, this is a short notice bout, but they were originally scheduled to fight each other. It was just going to be a three rounder. Now it's two more rounds, the five-rounder. You know, I think the five rounds definitely favors Blahovich because he has that five-round experience. He has that championship experience against Dominic Reyes, against Israel Adesanya, you know, against Glover Teixeira. He has five-round, you know, championship fight experience getting ready for a championship fight. So I do think that that two extra rounds is going to be more in favor of the underdog in Blahovich. But overall, this fight is just... It's an uphill battle for Jan Blahovich. I can't really see an area where Blahovich wins this fight. Besides him catching Ankalaev with a left hook over his jab or catching him with a blitzing combination and cracking him on the chin and knocking him out. Now, we're talking about a guy who's got that Polish power. You know, he's known for having the Polish power. And he uses it on a lot of guys. I mean, he cracks you on the chin. He can knock you out. Did he hurt Israel Adesanya? No, but he knocked out Luke Rockhold, knocked out Dominic Reyes. You know, did get a TK over Rockich, even though it was kind of due to an it was due to an injury and it wasn't really you know Rock or uh, Blahovich hurting him with a shot. Blahovich has a lot of power. He knocked out Corey Anderson. I mean, he can crack man. He leaves himself open for some counters, but he's got the power to shut your lights out. And if you don't think he can knock out Ankalaev, then you're crazy. I know Ankalaev is not easy to hit. I know he's very good defensively. He's always on his bicycle. He's always getting the outside foot, always angling, always using the check hook to get the outside angle. But he can crack Ankalaev. He can hurt him and he can drop him. I 100% believe it. He got dropped by... Um, Ankalaev got dropped by Santos in their last fight. In a brief exchange, he was just caught out of range and got dropped to the left hook. Blahovich has one of the best left hooks in this division. And I think if he catches Ankalaev on the chin, he can hurt him. But he's going to have to catch him either breaking off 
from inside the clinch like he did against Luke Rockhold, which is definitely a possibility, or he's going to have to blitz him up against the cage and then catch him circling off with a left hook. It's not going to be easy to track down Ankalaev. Ankalaev is so good defensively. He's so good at keeping the range and distance that he wants to fight, keeping you on the on the inside as he continues to get the outside foot. Check right hook, straight left hand. One, two down the middle, slip to his lead right side, pivot off, and continue to move. Front kicks up the middle. He can land a front kick to the face. He knocked out Dolce Lungiambula with a front kick to the face, who also fights on this card against Edmund Shabazian. You know, he hurt... Uh, he hurt Iwan Kutelaba in their first fight, you know, after it got stopped controversially due to that rope adult. But he was throwing left high kicks like they were jabs. I mean, the high kicks were coming up early, coming up often, and he was banging them away. In the second fight, he caught him with an overhand left, the right hook behind it, dropped him, jumped on him, and viciously knocked out Kutelaba. Like, don't get me wrong, Magomed Ankalaev is live for a finish as well. He has power, he has speed, he has the explosiveness. But if I see a knockout coming in this fight from either side, I think it's on the side of the former champion in Blahovich. I think he can catch Ankalaev stepping in and knock him out just in a blitzing combination, breaking off from inside the clinch, you know, catching him as he's circling against the cage. But when it comes down to the overall fight, I think Magomed Ankalaev is an overall mixed martial artist. He's just a better fighter than Blahovich. Now, does the better fighter always win? No, but I think his grappling can be used against Blahovich early and often. I think he can take down Blahovich. I think he can control him from inside his guard, from in the half guard, from in the full mount. I think he can control him from side control. I think he can use his wrestling and his takedowns. I think he can defend a takedown from Blahovich and use it to spin to take the back. Like, I think Blahovich can get out wrestled and will get out wrestled by. Magomed Ankalaev and that wrestling threat that Magomed has, even though he doesn't use it that often, that's going to make Blahovich a little bit tentative on the feet. And if you're tentative on the feet against a guy who's so good defensively, so good at getting the outside angles, so good at landing and pot shotting on you and keeping the distance to keep you away, landing the check hook over your jab. I mean, that's going to be a problem for Blahovich. And I feel like this is a fight where Blahovich is going to have his moments. I think he will hurt Ankalaev at one point. He'll catch him stepping in and boom, crack him on the chin and drop him. But Ankalaev will be able to survive. Like I said, if anybody's going to get a knockout in this fight, it's going to be Blahovich. And I think he will hurt Ankalaev, but I don't think he gets a finish. And I think if he doesn't get that finish, Ankalaev's going to pick him apart. He's going to jab him, check right hook him, straight left, check right hook, straight left, double jab, straight left. Left shot to the body, front kick to the body, right hook, left high kick, left body kick, tie him up in the clinch, take him down, out-wrestle him. And I think Ankalaev's going to cruise to a decision. I think it will be competitive 100%. I think Blahovich is going to have his moments, especially with that um, dart-in right hand to the switch left body kick. He's very good at using that. He used it against Adesanya. He used it against Dominic Reyes, and that's really what led up to that finish in that fight. The left hook is a problem. The body kicks are a problem from Blahovich. You know, the power of Blahovich is going to be a big question mark in this fight because we've seen Ankalaev get hurt. We've seen him get finished before, but that was against Paul Craig via submission. I don't really think Blahovich will get a submission here, but the power of Blahovich is going to be a big question mark. And um, the kicking game of Blahovich, I think, is going to give Ankalaev a little bit more trouble than people think. But overall, I think the technical ability, the defensive awareness, and the overall offensive and defensive masterpiece that Ankalaev has showed in his recent fights. It might not be the most exciting, but the guy's a smart heavy, smart fighter. He's one of the most elusive light heavyweights on the roster, and his footwork and movement and his counterability is just going to be too much for Blahovich. So my pick overall is going to be
the number four ranked Magomed Ankalaev to improve to 19 and one. It says 17 and one on uh, on uh, SureDog, so maybe he's 17 and one. He'll improve to 18 and one. Either way, he's going to be your new light heavyweight champion, and he's going to f- defeat Jan Blahovich via a decision. I think it's going to be a 48-47 unanimous decision. For Magomed Ankalaev, he's going to hand Blahovich another loss. He's going to defeat a former champion, and um, he's going to move on into that fight with Yuri Prohaska. I think we're going to get Magomed Ankalaev versus Yuri Prohaska for the light heavyweight title. And I think that's not the most exciting fight, but it's definitely a good fight in that light heavyweight division. But yeah, I think Magomed is just going to be able to cruise his way to a decision. He'll have some scares. He will get hurt at one point. You know, Blahovich is going to have a good showing of himself, but he's not going to defeat Magomed Ankalaev over the 25-minute distance. So Magomed Ankalaev to defeat Jan Blahovich via 48-47 unanimous decision to become the new light heavyweight champion. I'm going to be honest. I don't like betting this fight from any side. I don't like Ankalaev as a huge favorite. I don't like Blahovich to be- I don't back Blahovich enough to to bet him. If you're going to bet anything overall in this fight, it's Jan Blahovich to win by knockout because you're probably going to get good odds, and that's his only path to victory. The only way he's going to win is by knocking out Magomed, and he's definitely live for it because of the power that he possesses. But I'm not going to tell you to back Blahovich because I think Ankalaev wins this fight and he does it in a really good fashion. It's going to be competitive. It's not going to be a dominant one-side decision for Ankalaev, but he will win the majority of the rounds and get his hand raised after the judges' scorecards are read. So betting side, I say stay away from it. If you have to play it anyway, then I wouldn't parlay this, but I would play Blahovich by knockout just for the hell of it. Like I think it's definitely live, and you're probably going to get a plus 200 odds or higher. So if you're going to play it at all, that's what you play because he's always going to be live for the knockout. But the pick overall is Ankalaev via unanimous decision. All right, you can get this podcast anywhere you get your audio podcasts. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and many more. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed. I'll have this podcast episode broken up into segments and uploaded to my YouTube channel as soon as I can. It'll have each fight uploaded into an individual video. You know, thank you guys for all the support. Check me out on YouTube at the Touch 'em Up Podcast, same name as the podcast. Um, leave a review for me on Apple Podcast. You can donate to the podcast or the channel via PayPal. I have the links to my PayPal in the YouTube description boxes and also in the description to this podcast episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. This has been my UFC 282 Blahovich versus Ankalaev preview predictions and analysis. Let's get ready for Saturday and let's make some money this weekend.